your Bible and open it to Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, and then put your bulletin in there and mark it off, because before I read that scripture, I'm curious to know how many people here have been married at least 20 years? How many? Put up your hands. 20 years. Okay, that's quite a few. How many people here have been married 30 years? Okay, those of you, put up your hands. Stand up. Stand up. 30 years. Please stand up. Let me ask some of you who, who have been married 30 years. Did you promise uh, to love each other uh, for better or worse, in sickness, in health, for richer or poorer? Do you remember those words? Hmm. Hmm. I really hope that for you it was all better, richer, and healthy. For those of you standing, let me ask you, was it always better, richer, or healthy? Was it always? Or did you experience some sickness and poorer and worse? Mm. Yeah, you're all nodding your heads. Yes, you did. Now, Why did you hang in there? What's one reason why you hung in there? Don, let me ask you, what's one reason why you hung in there? Just one of them. Well, she, she was very good at putting up with me all this time. Ah, okay, so he had a patient wife. That's good. Al, why, why did you hang in there? Well, I love my life, uh, my wife, I should say, mm. and I love my children. Mm. That's an important reason to stick around. Very good. Elias, why did you hang in there? Because my wife prayed for me. Oh. She's prayed for me every day since we met. And Christine, why did you hang in there? Because it was easier to be the two of us. We leaned on each other and found strength together. Warren, why did you hang in there? How many years have you been married? Forty-four. Forty-four. Well, for a number of reasons, starting with the fact that God gave me the right uh, woman. Um, but um, I've always believed when God said, uh, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, that he wasn't kidding. Very good. Okay, you can be seated. We honor you. We honor you this morning, those of you. And I could have gone to every one of you and asked you, why? Did you hang in there? Because we live in a world where people often don't hang in there. But Jesus, Jesus said, Matthew 19, 4 through 6, and you can find it on the back of your sermon outline. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And there are other passages we will explore in this topical sermon this morning continuing our study through marriage, but thank you for those of you who shared with us 
You know, there's a television show on a cable channel that, that I don't subscribe to, but, but uh, I saw it advertised, and the name of the show is Who the Bleep Did I Marry? And episode after episode is the story of some person who got engaged and married. Oftentimes it's a woman who married a man and they discovered that he was a criminal. Or they discovered that he he had a family in Dallas or in Miami that he didn't tell them about. Or that she was an addict with all kinds of strange and, and weird habits that had landed her in jail. And, 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 and of course, the, the viewer is locked in to, to the television show. And the person says, who is this stranger? Who did I marry? But you know what? That, does, that doesn't just happen to people on reality TV. Everyone who marries, whether it's a week after the honeymoon or it's 15 years later, every couple suddenly gets stuck. And one of them says in their heart of hearts, Who did I marry? And there's something about you that I didn't know, that I didn't anticipate, that I did not expect. And I'm upset. You know, Nina discovered after we were married, really, that I don't like chocolate. I don't like chocolate. And sometimes she said, if I had known you didn't like chocolate, I wouldn't have married you. You know, it's like I have this, I have this huge disability you know, that she has had to live with. And, and I, I guess come dessert time, it's pretty difficult as she loves chocolate. Who are you? And as wonderful as marriage is, I like to tell couples, one day you will wake up and discover that you did not marry yourself. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that one day you're going to wake up and you're going to say about the person next to you, if you're married, you are so different. You think so differently than I do. I just don't get you at all. Who is this stranger that I married? What has happened? Even though you were made into one. You see, Jesus said in our text this morning, the two become one. Isn't that correct? That's what happens. Two people are united. They become one. But you don't feel like one. And I've heard people say, this is not the same person I married. It doesn't feel like we're one anymore. Let's think about this. Why does this happen? And if you're single here today, you pay close attention because there's so much about relationships you need to know. And if God calls you to be married, you need to pay attention to this. Why does this happen? Well, 
First, infatuation is not the best predictor of what's going to happen in your marriage. What do I mean by this? What I mean is that when you're courting and when you are engaged to be married, you are just so excited about the other person and they are so excited about you and both of you are putting your best foot forward in order to present yourself to each other as desirable and and both of you are eager for the other person to put their best foot forward to you so that you are desirable. And I was reading Walter Wangeren's marvelous book called As for Me and My House. And he talks about this time of putting his best foot forward and he remembers his first date with his wife Ruth Ann. And he said he went to the car to go pick her up and he saw all the junk in the back seat. And he cleaned the car. He cleaned it up and he vacuumed it out and he washed the windows and he picked her up and the car was clean. And he said, if you ask my college buddies, they would have been surprised, but I made sure my clothes were washed and my shirt was pressed. And I used mouthwash, he said. I was trying to impress her. He, said, he asks this, was I deceiving her? Of course not. I was showing her what I truly believed myself to be in the generous light of her love. <laughs> and I wanted her to see who I knew I could become. <laughs> if only for the prize of her hand in marriage, I shaved, I wore clean clothes, and I became the ideal Walter. You see, where there's infatuation, there is what the psychologists would call idealization. Like, well, like the lover in the Song of Solomon. You know that great love that the lover has in the Song of Solomon. And the Song of Solomon both delights in love and it gives warnings that love's, love makes you crazy. Makes you do sometimes stupid and dangerous things. It's in the Song of Solomon. But there's this idealization of the beloved and Wangren says, and Tim Keller says, and Charles Swindoll says, and Larry Crabb says, and all the great marriage counselors say, what follows idealization is what's called realization. Where your eyes get opened. And he says, our idealized image of the fiancé must be replaced by a true realization of the spouse who is. And what they mean is, then you have to do what they call good work. You have to do good work. And if you do good work in the process of realization, coming to terms with who the other person really is, you do good work, it will build and strengthen the relationship. But if you do bad work, if you just become angry and hostile and selfish, if you do bad work, it will only lead to alienation. And so, in those moments where reality breaks in and pops the bubble, you have a choice whether you're going to do good work or bad work in your marriage. And you see, the pressures of marriage reveal the weaknesses in our own character. I know the Families with Young Children group, they read through Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. And in one of his chapters, he says so beautifully 
that marriage is like the bridge. It's like the bridge across a country stream. And it's a, it's a nice little bridge, but inside this old bridge are cracks and faults that you can't see. And then a 10-ton Mack truck rumbles up and wants to drive over that bridge. And as it drives over the bridge, what happens? The faults are exposed. The tension causes the cracks to be revealed. And Tim Keller says, the truck didn't create the weaknesses, it just revealed them. And when you get married, your spouse is a big truck driving right through your heart. And marriage reveals the worst in you. I didn't come here today to insult you. I'm just telling you what Tim Keller says. Marriage reveals the worst in you. It doesn't create your weaknesses. It just reveals them. And so in in the reflection in your bulletin, I have this quote from Stanley Hauerwas. He says, We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means that we are not the same person after we have entered into it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. And don't be deceived. It's not about doing all this premarital stuff because ultimately permanence changes you. You might have been friends even for a long time before you got engaged, and you might even have a long engagement, but you still don't know how to react to your spouse because they're not a spouse yet. Permanence changes you. Children change you. Career paths varying changes you. And yet, whenever someone comes to me and says, well, that's not the same person I married, I do have to remind them that their fingerprint is still the same, and the DNA in their body is still the same. It is still the same person, even if they have changed, even if the fractures, the stress fractures are being revealed. So that leads to point number two. What do we say to ourselves? We say to ourselves, well, I'm still in this covenant of companionship. According to Jesus, this marriage is permanent. So I have to, just, just, I have to now strive to live it out the way our testimonies that we heard today told us. I have to strive to bless the marriage and pray that it will work for God's glory. And so if you're going to get marriage right, this covenant of companionship, right? You have to start at the beginning and get it right. I've said this before. You do have to start at the beginning. Whenever you button up a a sweater, that first button makes all the difference, right? If you get the first one wrong, you're off the whole way up, and then it's, it looks like a first grader pasted it onto you, you know? And when I do that occasionally, and Nina always has a choice, Should I tell him 
Or should I let the staff enjoy this? <laughs> and usually she's merciful to me. And, 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 um, but, but you've got to get that first button right. First things first. We said that when we, when we did the marriage class using Dave Harvey's When Sinners Say I Do. He says you've got to get the first things first. What's first? It's God's definition of marriage. So what is it? Well, it's called a covenant of companionship. And I hope you know this. If you're a teenager, listen carefully. What is marriage? It's a covenant of companionship. Martin told us in Genesis 2.18, remember, God looked at Adam. Everything was good, but it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so the reason for marriage was to solve this problem of aloneness or loneliness. And we find that companionship then is the solution, the essence of marriage, the solution to this problem. God made us so that we would have an intimate companion with whom to live. Now, now I know Jesus told us there are some people who are given a gift of singleness. And there are people who, who are... Who are single by God's design, but the vast majority of humanity is wired such that they desire that companionship of the opposite sex in order to live together. And so it's a covenant of companionship. You'll notice in the book of Proverbs, I quoted for you on your bulletin, Proverbs 2, 16 and 17, as it talks about a bad situation, about the adulteress, right? And he's called to be delivered from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves, here it is in the New American Standard Bible, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Do you see that there? And this word companion, it's sometimes translated partner, but it's a word that speaks of a close, intimate relationship of one person to another. And that's what marriage is, a close, intimate relationship of a husband and a wife to each other. And then in Malachi uh, 2.14, the last book of the Old Testament, where it's talking about divorce, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And there's that word again. Actually, both words. She's your companion. It's a different Hebrew word, but it, uh, once again, it means this partner and the person alongside of you. And notice the word covenant is there in both of these passages. Listen, brothers and sisters, marriage is more than just legalized mating. It's more than just the arrangement to create children. Some Christian churches through the centuries have said, you know, how important it is to have children. It is important. It's a, it's, you know, that's part of God's design. But it's companionship that's first. And then the covenant seals it and makes it permanent. Now, here's what's interesting. In some cultures, 
they have the covenant. And that's the important thing. That's where you have arranged marriages, right? Two dads get together, they exchange a few camels, and uh, the, the, the boy and the girl are put together. And it's an economic binding arrangement for the benefit of the families. But the couple never experiences real companionship. It's just a covenant. They have the covenant without the companionship. Here in the Western world, in Europe and in the United States, well, we love the companionship. Why? Let's just shack up together. Let's just live together and and have a joint checking account. And who needs a piece of paper? And who needs a ring and all that stuff? Why, we're in love until we get bored with each other, and then I'll abandon you for someone else. Or until the responsibilities are too much, and then I'm out of here. And they want the companionship without the covenant. But do you see, God's way is so much better than the counterfeits of the world. So you're in this covenant of companionship. And and let's just think about this permanence, this matter of permanence for a moment. So important for Christians to agree on. Yes, of course, there is such a thing as divorce in the Bible. And properly handled, uh, divorce is a formal, legal act whereby the covenant of companionship is repudiated and dissolved. Deuteronomy 24 talks about it. Uh, and and there are, in the case of adultery, in the case of abandonment, there are proper ways for that to happen. But Jesus says in our passage today about the will of God, what God has joined together, let not man separate. See, it says that a husband and a wife shall cleave. It's the Hebrew word debak. And the word debak also refers to an adhesive. It's used in the book of Job and other places. I guess we would say like glue. It's to be like glue when the man will cleave to his wife. You see, this is where that covenantal permanence is laid out there. That was right in Genesis 2.24, right in the very beginning. And you become one flesh. And so, now the implications are clear. When I look and I say, who is this stranger to whom I am married? When I wake up and, and find out I didn't marry someone who thinks like I do, I remember it's for richer or poorer. It's in sickness and in health. It's for better or for worse. And I pray for all of you. I do. I earnestly do. I pray that it will always be for you, for richer and for health and for better. But I know that it will also sometimes be in sickness and for poorer and worse. And it's right at that point then that we who name the name of Jesus, who follow the Bible, we say, I'm in this marriage and I'm not going to leave. I remember many years ago I read Charles Swindoll's book on marriage and he told of one of his good friends 
how his, he picked up his friend in the car and his, I, I, if I'm remembering it correctly, his face was bright red and he and his wife had just been wallpapering together the kitchen. If you've ever done wallpapering, you should know better. <laughs> wallpapering is the worst job in the world. It requires such precision. It requires so many hands. It requires you to get it just right. And once you got it wrong, it's such a hassle. And apparently this couple was not uh, working too well together. And he came out and got in the car. And he is so frustrated. He is upset. And, you know, he's going on and on about the... the, the, the he feels the angina in his heart. Uh, and, and I'm adding a little bit, but you, you know, the angina is in his heart. And... And he says, but do you know why our marriage works? He said, one word. Commitment. I'm committed to loving her. And she's committed to loving me. So we're going to get through this kitchen thing together. How do you love this stranger that you married into this covenant of companionship? Well, point number three, in your marriage, you commit to ministry. You commit to ministry, not manipulation. And I chose these words carefully because last week, if you were listening, as we studied in uh, Ephesians 4.29, remember that just a week ago? Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit. It's this cascade of ministry, that what I say will benefit, will be according to your needs, that it will help uh, uh, solve the problems to benefit those who listen and build you up. And you do this even when you don't feel like you're one. Because you're in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has laid down His life for you, and so you are willing to lay down your life for your spouse. I heard a woman put it like this. Here's what she said. She said, my life is not my life anymore. Now, of course, we hear that in parenthesis. A Christian immediately realizes my life is not my own. I belong to Jesus Christ, right? And that's the first thing that every one of us, whether you're married or not, needs to remember. My life is not my own. Heidelberg Catechism, question one. My life is not my own. I belong to Christ. But she's talking here about a secondary or a second way that her life is not her own because she just got married. Not just got married, she's been married for a while. She says, my life is not my life anymore. It is a weaving of two lives into one. On a day-to-day -day basis, I have made a commitment to something higher than myself. I have learned how to put things ahead of my own desires for the marriage and for my husband, and I'm happy to do that. And I do it because it's what God wants me to do. And that's what makes my marriage work. And she was so blessed because she said, and my husband does the same thing for me. I know some, what some of you are thinking, but maybe my spouse doesn't do that for me. In her case, she says, my husband does the same thing for me. She says, we are a matching pair. He's the right shoe. I'm the left. And there is a sacred spiritual and pure feeling that I have about our marriage, and it's beautiful. What is happening 
as she is fulfilling Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And you know this passage where Paul says uh, that he wants you, you who are united to Christ, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, okay, Christian? You're united with Christ. If you have any comfort from His love, have you experienced that comfort? If any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And start with your spouse. Start with your spouse. Some of you, you're not married. Okay, start with your parents. Start with your siblings, your brothers and sisters. Start with your children. Have this same mind. But if you're married, start with your spouse. Have this mind of Christ. Each of you, in humility, should consider others better than yourselves, looking not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. It's a daily choice. It's a daily choice, isn't it? Because I get angry. What I want to do with my anger is nurse it and express it. And I have to go to God. God, I'm in love with my anger. My anger is so much fun. My anger is the way I can be authentic and real... Oh, God, take this anger out of my heart. Replace it with your love. Show me your mercy. Let me minister to my wife. She said, putting the needs of the others ahead of yourself. I'll tell you what happens. Men, men, we get excited about a woman and we want to marry her. Why? A man marries a woman in our culture so often. This is a generalization, but I think I'm not too stupid, uh, and he sees the woman and he says, she will become my secretary and my maid and my mistress, and that's what I want. And I'll provide and I'll protect, and that's what I'll get. And she will look, and whatever her agenda is, she will say, this is what I want. And the Bible says you may or may not get those things, but that's not what's first. It's not what's first. If you go into marriage, you're going into marriage to minister and to bless the other one first. And then when that happens, you have two people outdoing each other, seeking to step into each other's worlds and minister the love of Christ in whatever way meets their needs, one outdoing the other, seeking to love, seeking to serve, seeking to forgive, seeking to bless, as God in Christ has done it for you. Oh, you see the sin in your husband? Do you see the sin in your wife? I see your sin. but I cover it with forgiveness because Jesus saw my sin and covered it. As we come now to communion, 
I want you, if you're married, to recommit yourself to ministry in your marriage. You say, that's all I do? Well, you have new things to learn about ministry, even today. As we think about relationships, some of you who are not married, you still have to endure with your parents. You still have to endure with your brothers and sisters. You still have to endure with your children, so you have some business to do with God today, too. Is there someone you need to forgive? You're about to drink the wine of forgiveness. God needs to do business with you today that you will forgive, lay down your sword, and take up the towel to love and to bless. Oh, Lord, can you pray it with me? Oh, Lord, I want to be your agent of love toward my spouse today. Will you do that? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the great bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have come for your bride, the church, and you will never leave her or forsake her. You are the faithful one. You bled and died. You laid down your life for your bride. Oh, thank you. Now, our Father, each of us, married or unmarried, you have shown us these building blocks in life. Each of us invites you to do some business with us. Forgive us our sins, our particular sins. The stress of the 10-ton truck on our marriage is indeed there. Lord, show us where today you want to renew us. And what a wonderful opportunity we have now for cleansing and for hope, for strength and for joy to persevere and to live as a blessing by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.